and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast developed by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing the gendering of birth control and how it affects reproductive justice in today's world. Our guest today is Crystal E. Littlejohn, Ph.D., Dr. Littlejohn is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Oregon, whose work centers on race, gender, and reproduction, and she is the author of the book, Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Littlejohn. We're so excited to have you today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So just to begin... Can you talk about what you mean, as you reference in your book, by the gendering of birth control, or as you put it, his condom, her pill? To say that we gender birth control really means that we assign responsibility for preventing pregnancy using gender roles, right? So it's the idea that it's the man's job to buy condoms. It's their job to bring them to the sexual encounter, and it's their job to use them properly. And it's the woman's job, on the other hand, to make sure that she's on the pill or that she's using another form of prescription birth control. And so she has to do the research. She has to make the appointment. She has to get the prescription. And then she also has to make sure that she's using it all the time. It's her job to make sure that she doesn't get pregnant using methods designed for her body, like the pill, like the shot, like the IUD. And this is really important because there's no biological reason, right, that cisgender men have to be the ones that are responsible for condoms. And there's no biological reason that condoms can't also be understood as something that is okay for women to control and for women to have and for women to bring to the encounter. You know, in your book, again, that in long-term heterosexual relationships, which is the focus in the book, that women overwhelmingly handle the contraceptive needs of the couples via prescriptions for hormonal birth control versus those quote-unquote male methods, such as external condoms. Do you have statistics on how many couples rely on these quote female methods versus male methods or Do these statistics change across any demographics such as age, socioeconomic status, et cetera? Absolutely. So it's hard to get data on couples just because there are very few surveys out there that actually collect data from both members of the partnership. But based on data from surveys that's looking at individual people, right? So individual women, individual men, we do have some information that can help us shed light on what responsibility actually looks like. And it is very much consistent with the qualitative work in the area. And so, for example, there's data from the National Health Statistics, right? A 2017 NHS report shows that based on data from the 2011 to 2015 National Survey of Family Growth, only 24% of men that were ages 15 to 44 said that they used a condom every single time they had sex in the last month, right? So 24%, I found pretty striking, right? That's a pretty striking number. And I thought strikingly low number of men that said they had always used a condom in the last month. And it's especially striking when you compare that to what that looks like for pill use for women, right? So data from the CDC using, also using data from the National Survey of Family Growth found that a whopping 69% of women who had used the pill in the last four weeks and had had sexual intercourse in the last year, a whopping 69% of them said that they had never, ever missed taking a pill. 
right? And so this is just really striking when you see there's just a quarter of men that said they used a condom every time they had sex in the last month. But then on the other hand, you see that almost 70% of women said that they had never, ever missed a pill, right? So they, on the other hand, said they had used a pill every single day. And so it's really striking to see what this data looks like quantitatively, but it really does dovetail with the qualitative research that we have, stuff that I report in the book and stuff that other qualitative researchers have found around the expectations that women be responsible for using the pill and other methods that interact with their bodies. And I want to just point out and make clear that even though one might say these statistics that you're presenting are about condom use or prescription birth control use like the pill, the key is that dual method use, right? Using two methods of birth control is just, it's so rare in the United States, right? That it's, it just, these numbers can't be explained by just saying, well, maybe it's actually that there's a large proportion of people who are just using multiple methods of birth control, right? They're using a condom and the pill, right? And that's just not the case. In terms of your question regarding differences that we see, there are some differences in, in use of the condom, particularly by things like race and education. And so for the purposes of my work, one of the things that I think is really important to draw our attention to is that despite some of the narratives that exist in the literature that can pathologize the behaviors of Black women, for example, for not being on prescription birth control, which we'll get into later in our talk today, most likely, what you actually see when you look at data for condom use is that Black women and men using the same data from the National Survey of Family Growth were more likely than Latino people and white people to have used a condom 100% of the time, right? And so you see that even though there sometimes be these expectations that certain racial groups, particularly Black women and Black men, are going to be less likely to use birth control when you zero in on things like using the condom every single time, you see that it actually can fly in the face of what people might actually be imagining about their behavior. And my work goes a step further to say that even when we do see some of these things that might seemingly align with the narrative, right? If you see that Black women are not using any form of birth control, right, that might seem to align with the narrative that there's something going on there. When you actually look at their experiences, you find that there are really important social factors that are shaping their decisions not to use prescription birth control. And it's not just about being careless. And that's something that we need to really make sure that we're thinking about as researchers and as practitioners that are working with people. And so I think there's obviously so much stuff that we could get into about the differences, but I, I think that I'll stop there and I'll just add before I stop there that when you look at education differences, more educated people are more likely to use condoms than, than less educated people are. Uh, and I think as a sociologist, what's been key for me is understanding the social context that people find themselves in that can help us understand the decisions and the context that shape the decisions that they're making. One of the big themes that stuck out to me when I read your book was about how language and other gendered expectations and customs and roles influence how we in the U.S. and most of the Western world really see the responsibility of pregnancy prevention. Can you expand on this a little bit and maybe give some examples for our listeners of how this works in action? Gender and language play so big of a role in how we think about contraceptive responsibility and contraceptive use. And it's fascinating how easy it is to ignore it and to take it for granted. And what I found in Just Get on the Pill is that women very much believe that condoms were a man's method to use, right? It was up to men to buy them. It was up to men to bring them. It was up to men to figure it out. And on the one hand, that might 
seem like it's not necessarily related to language. But what I found was people, they talked about it being his condom all the time. And that actually relates to how we see it depicted in other materials in public health, right? There's, when you look at charts on contraceptive efficacy, it is not unusual to see the external condom, right? A condom that's worn on a man's penis. It's not unusual to see that depicted as a male condom. And then you have the female condom, right? And those kinds of labels play a really important role in helping to shape how people think about something, right? So if you see something that's labeled a male condom as a woman, it could make you think that that's not really your thing, right? That's not your thing to worry about. That's not your thing to try and have any control over in the encounter. And so even though it is so taken for granted in our society, the women in in my study talked about the male condom and used the term the male condom or talked about his condom in ways that were entirely unproblematic, right? They didn't see it as something to remark upon. They didn't see it as something that was striking to them. It was just a, a regular part of their conversation they were talking about him using his condom. And so one of the things that I think we should really be focusing on as people who care about creating change and improving reproductive autonomy is making sure that we're focusing on how issues that can seem trivial, like language and like just the way that we label a method can actually play a huge role in shaping the kind of power that people feel over the methods that they have access to. And if we want to see that change created, it's really important that we start to interrogate it, not just with patients, if you're serving patients, or for me, not just with my students, if I'm teaching on this kind of stuff, it's the kind of thing that we can just interrogate every day in our everyday language. Or if you come across, you know, an ad, you know, I I tend to kind of send things to people. They're like, can you believe this, right? It's kind of just making sure that every avenue that we have to interrupt these messages, right, that we play a role in doing that, because it's not only important when people are explicitly thinking about contraception, right? The key with gender is that it gets into everything and it's everywhere. And so we need to make sure that we're kind of on our toes to try and interrupt when we can. And to take kind of a historical perspective of this, many people have regarded the birth of the pill as a way women have become liberated from compulsory pregnancy, motherhood, childbearing. But in your book, you also make the argument that pregnancy prevention itself has become, in a way, compulsory. And of course, as you've discussed already, gendered, and that creates an unequal burden on women. What are some of the negative outcomes of this new gendered burden? One of the most striking issues is that even though we overlook it, compelling women to use prescription birth control methods like the pill, while it's really helpful, obviously, for helping them prevent pregnancy, can actually make it much harder for them to prevent disease. And it's striking to me in the context of the skyrocketing rates of sexually transmitted infections that we tend to encourage women who and people who get pregnant to use prescription birth control methods without paying attention to the context that they're using those methods in and how a compulsory birth control system can actually make it harder to get their partners to use condoms when they want them to. In the study and then when I was writing the book, one of the things that was fascinating and heartbreaking for me was to see the ways that women were trying to navigate preventing pregnancy when they didn't want to have a baby, but at the same time, really struggling to get their partners to use condoms when they wanted them to, and to face these assertions that 
their partners didn't have to use condoms because they were on the pill, right? And my, the name of my book, Just Get on the Pill, right? That comes from this idea that if a person is having trouble getting her partner to wear condoms, she doesn't have to worry about it because she can just get on the pill. But there are really important consequences to using that narrative, right? If we think that the only thing that matters is that a person doesn't get pregnant, then they can get on an IUD, they can get on an implant, they can get on the shot or the pill. But what happens when they then have to face partners who now believe that they don't have to do anything to prevent pregnancy because they're on the pill or on some other form of birth control. And if that's the only thing on their minds, then they're just not worrying about sexually transmitted infections. And so it became a real issue for women in the study to try and figure out how could they protect themselves, not just from pregnancy, but from sexually transmitted infections. And one of the things that ended up coming up quite often in the book was the number of people who were not even really thinking about preventing STIs during their sexual encounters. So we asked women to talk with us about all each sexual experience that they had and each sexual relationship that they had. And so they'd recount how they were using prescription birth control methods or not, or using condoms or not. And they would often remark on how they were really focusing on preventing pregnancy, but how they'd be much less focused on preventing sexually transmitted infections. And so that is one of the most striking consequences that I think could be avoided completely if we changed our approach to pregnancy prevention in the United States. And it also has really helpful consequences if we were to change it for making sure that we improve people's reproductive autonomy and their sense of bodily autonomy. What are some of those other consequences you found in your study, as well as how they undermined the idea of true reproductive justice and choice. What were some of your findings there? Such a key issue here is being mindful of what true reproductive autonomy looks like when we're talking about using prescription birth control methods that can be so powerful, right? But they can also be oppressive and they can also be constraining if we're not thinking about the context that we're encouraging people to use them under. And if we're not thinking about the ways that we're supporting their right to make whatever choices feel best for them. And so when it came to people being compelled to use prescription birth control, as I mentioned, it could undermine their ability to protect themselves from disease, but it could also make it where they didn't feel particularly free in choosing to use the prescription birth control method that they were using. So some women talked about being quote unquote, put on the pill or quote unquote, they had to go on the pill because they would go to their provider and their provider would say, hey, you mentioned that you're having sexual intercourse with your partner. I think it's a good idea for you to use a prescription birth control method. And even if they didn't want to do it, and even if they didn't think that it was particularly the best thing for them to be doing in their life at that very moment, some of them would just get on the pill anyway because they thought that that was what they should be doing according to what their doctor had told them that they should. In other cases, you had partners who, because they didn't want to wear condoms, would coerce their partners into using a prescription form of birth control. Or sometimes if it wasn't explicitly coercive, it would be, it could seem like just a suggestion or just a comment that a partner could make. I remember one woman talking about watching, sitting on the couch and watching TV with uh, her boyfriend and a commercial for the IUD came on. And he said, yeah, you should get that. Right. And the idea was, yeah, she should get that so that he didn't have to wear a condom anymore um, or so that they wouldn't be fighting over condoms. And so when we're thinking about what that looks like, it's really important to keep in mind that 
yes, the pill and the shot and these other methods can be incredibly empowering for the people using them, but they can only be empowering if they're used in the context of the ability to use them freely, right? It's not empowering if a person feels like they just have to go on the pill or if a person feels like they really want to avoid pregnancy they have no choice but to do that, but they're still then worrying about catching an STI from a partner who refuses to wear condoms and who they might be concerned is not being monogamous, right? Or I also saw in, in the study examples of women who, and we know this just from history, right? There are people who believe that their partners are being monogamous and then they end up finding out they have a sexually transmitted infection because that wasn't in fact the case. And so the key when we're thinking about trying to support people's abilities to make free choices and to have their method be empowering is that we have to think about the conditions under which they're using the methods and if those conditions actually support them freely making decisions. And if they don't, then we need to interrogate those conditions to see how we as friends, as partners, as parents, right, are supporting them in making choices that feel good to them or the ways that we might be inadvertently pressuring them into making decisions that might help them prevent pregnancy, but might also simultaneously make it harder for them to feel like they have control over their bodies. Wonderful. And to kind of go back a little bit to something we talked about earlier, you specifically in your book looked at the impact of race and ethnicity and how that interacts with gender in this uneven burden of pregnancy prevention. Can you tell us a little bit about your findings, intersection of race and gender that you found in your study and in your book? I found that while women of all races faced pressure and expectations that they should use a form of prescription birth control to prevent pregnancy, there were differences in how people responded to that pressure. And so in one of the chapters of the book, I talk about how Black women and less advantaged women were more likely to forgo using prescription birth control method, especially when they had partners who refused to wear condoms. And so I talk about how there was this resistance to gender, sometimes explicitly, right? Sometimes people would say they didn't think it was fair that they had to be on some kind of birth control and their partner didn't have to do anything. And other times it was less explicit where they just said they didn't think that it was absolutely important that they be on a form of prescription birth control and they felt like their partners should wear condoms. So it wasn't framed in explicit gender terms of fairness or unfairness, but there was this recollection and this reflection that they felt like it was important that they be able to do what they wanted to do. And what they wanted to do was actually not use prescription birth control, right? So many of them felt like they wanted to use condoms, whether that was for fear of sexually transmitted infections, or just because condoms were their preferred method. And so there was absolutely a difference in race and how women responded to gendered compulsory birth control. While, as I mentioned, everybody was under kind of the same pressure to use prescription birth control methods, right? It wasn't that Black women weren't told by people that they should get on prescription birth control, that they should make sure they didn't get pregnant by using a prescription birth control method, right? They, almost all of the women in the study talked about that, right? But it was, what did that look like when it actually came time to enact those behaviors? And that's where we saw differences, right? White and Asian women and, and Latina women were more likely to kind of follow a more traditional gendered expectations around using a method like the pill, especially when they had partners that didn't want to wear condoms, whereas Black women were more likely to resist that. 
as we all know, that unfortunately the best laid plans uh, sometimes go awry and pregnancies do occur even on birth control. Does this gendering of the responsibility of pregnancy prevention also extend to when that birth control failure happens? And how does that manifest and affect women's health and well-being? Yes, it absolutely extends to if a pregnancy occurs. In the book, I talk about how women were still expected to resolve pregnancies in gender-constrained ways, even after they had been trying to use prescription birth control and it might not have worked out for them, or in times when their partners refused to wear condoms and they refused to use prescription birth control. And so a pregnancy occurred because they weren't using anything. And in those cases, what I found was that there were some women who really wanted to have an abortion and their partners or their partner's families or their parents would tell them that they should really give birth and that abortion wasn't something that should be in the cards for them. And so they had to try and figure out how to get the abortion that they wanted when they were facing constraints on the reproductive autonomy in that way. There were other cases where women might want to give birth and they were up against other people who were trying to tell them that they should resolve their pregnancy in a different way. And so the key is that Although pregnancy prevention was gendered and people were expected to use a particular form of prescription birth control to make sure they prevented it, the resolution of pregnancy was also gendered, right? And they were expected to adhere to what their partners or parents or families wanted them to do. And this makes perfect sense in the context of a very gendered society where the expectation in family planning um, or in pregnancy prevention, just like the expectation in lots of other places, is that women should do what's expected of them as gendered beings, right? So there's a particular understanding that women should take a particular path. And that path is oftentimes one where they're expected to do what pleases people around them. And it, was, it wasn't it was different in the case of pregnancy prevention, or in this case, the case of resolving pregnancies when they occurred. Sometimes they were undesired, sometimes they weren't, but it didn't change the fact that people faced expectations that they take other people's opinions and desires into consideration over their own desires for how to resolve their pregnancies. And in your book, you focus mostly on speaking with women and their experiences. But as we all know, the quote unquote male or to degender it, the external condom isn't the only birth control method that is sort of has that male or that gendered. And since the summer Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health was handed down, we've heard that rates of vasectomy requests have increased in many parts of the country. What are your thoughts on this trend and if it may be continuing or do you see other factors that may influence men to kind of take back some of that burden and degender pregnancy prevention on a whole? I think it's fantastic that more men are seeing the responsibility that they have to help prevent pregnancy and are trying to do something to assume that responsibility. I think that's fantastic. I think it's also important that we be mindful of the idea that stepping in to assume responsibility is not just something that men should be doing on an emergency basis, right? This is something that they should be taking part in all the time, regardless of the broader reproductive context that they might find themselves in. I think when it comes to imagining the future for men, it becomes really important for us as a society to recognize 
that men are reproductive actors, right? And that men have a responsibility and a role to play, not just because they should help their partners prevent pregnancy, but also because it's important that they consider what their desires are for a family as well, and that they make sure that their behaviors align with those desires. And I think that the conversation around vasectomy gives us kind of increasing number of men that are getting vasectomies gives us a, a wonderful opportunity to have a conversation about what this looks like, right? What does it look like to consider men as reproductive actors? What does it look like to make sure that everybody has access to whatever birth control method that they need to prevent pregnancy? I think all of those things are super important. And since the majority of our listeners are prescribing clinicians or people who are in clinic staff rather than academics like yourself. What's some of your advice on taking your study and incorporating its lessons into their own practices and their own patient education and counseling? And what are some ways they can encourage both on sort of a a bit more structural level and in a provider to patient level a more balanced responsibility in that pregnancy prevention. Yeah. So I want to just start by saying that I recognize that clinicians have a tricky role to play, right? When they're, they don't, they may not have a ton of information about their patients when their patients come in to talk with them about their prescription birth control. They oftentimes face issues with limited time to discuss things. And so I just want to recognize that I understand that in the context of trying to best serve their patients, they do face constraints themselves. But I think that one of the, the key ways that we can try and mitigate some of these issues is by challenging the assumption that getting a patient to get a prescription form of birth control is actually going to absolutely solve the problem that their patient is visiting them for that day, right? So sometimes you might have a patient that's visiting and doesn't quite know what they want to get, but they know that they are worried about pregnancy. And they say that, for example, they're having trouble getting their partner to wear a condom, right? It might seem immediately apparent that the solution is something like an IUD, right? You, They could get it. They don't have to worry about visiting for a while. Their partner doesn't have to know about it. But one of the challenges is that just going straight to that solution doesn't actually deal with the context that this person finds themselves in. And that context is that they actually want their partner to wear a condom, but they can't get their partner to do so, right? And so an easier way to help this patient might be doing something like talking about the IUD, but also discussing strategies to help the person actually get their partner to wear a condom, right? So it doesn't have to be an either or proposition. If the person is interested in a form of prescription birth control, obviously they should get that form of prescription birth control. But I don't think that simply prescribing a form of contraception has to be the be all end all of the conversation, right? It's important to recognize that patients leave the office and they find themselves in a variety of social contexts that might lend themselves to challenges that providers might not always be aware of. So I think that making sure to center opportunities to intervene so there is a problem that the patient finds themselves in with condoms, I think that's really important to see. This is an opportunity where the clinician can help the patient figure out how to better navigate those kinds of tricky situations around condom use that can also help protect themselves against sexually transmitted infections 
infections in case that's an issue. I think it becomes particularly important above all of this, right, above everything that I just said, to make sure that we're always centering the needs of the patient, right? Not to center the centrality of preventing pregnancy, not to think that a pregnancy is the worst thing that could ever happen to a patient, because for some patients, that's not the worst thing that could happen for them, right? For some patients, the worst thing that could happen to them is finding out that they have AIDS and a provider giving them a form of prescription birth control to make sure they prevent pregnancy that then makes it easier to facilitate their partner not wearing a condom, in fact, would be devastating for that kind of patient, right? So I think making sure that we are being mindful as clinicians, as people about the needs that patients have when they present in the office and that we're always centering those needs when clinicians are making whatever kind of recommendation they're making for their patients. It's it's really important to make sure that we're getting full information about what the patient needs so that that can guide whatever decision comes thereafter. Well, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation, but as with all good things, it does come to an end. But before we say goodbye, what would you say are your top takeaways, the one thing that you really want clinicians to remember as they return to their practices? Contraceptive efficacy is only one dimension that women care about when they're trying to make decisions about the kind of contraception that they're going to use. And it's really important as clinicians that have the power to shape the kinds of birth control methods that people have access to and choose, but also to shape their trajectories to understand the different dimensions that are important to their patients and to make sure that patients get the methods that that they need and that they want in line with those desires are, right? In my study, I had women that talked about getting, accepting a, a prescription method just because they thought that that's what their doctor wanted them to do. But then they went home and didn't use it, right? And in those kinds of cases, their clinician, I'm sure, was well-meaning and thought, this is the best thing for you. This will help you prevent pregnancy. This will make sure um, that nothing will come of, of intercourse if you don't want to have a pregnancy. But it wasn't tracking with what that patient needed, right? Some of these patients were afraid of side effects, right? That their providers didn't consider such a big deal, whereas the patients themselves actually found them to be a serious issue that would stop them from using a prescription method that their provider might have thought they should get. And so I would say that the big thing is to just kind of think about the different needs that patients have beyond choosing a method that is highly effective and to try and see if they can help patients find methods that not only align with their desires for efficacy, but also align with their social context and the context that they find themselves in, in which a dual method strategy might be particularly important for them. And that would help them protect themselves from pregnancy, obviously, but would also give them the bodily autonomy that they need to to make sure they can protect themselves from disease too. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Littlejohn, and for sharing your time and expertise. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, Clinical Connections, at the top of the page. 
You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and on LinkedIn. The National Clinical Training Center is funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees, subrecipients, and service sites, and is supported by DHHS Grant Number 5, FPTPA 006031-02-00. This podcast is intended for informational purposes and does not constitute legal or medical advice or endorsement of a specific product. Opinions expressed herein are the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA, the University of Missouri-Kansas City, UMKC, or the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning, NCTCFP. No official support or endorsement by DHHS, OPA, UMKC, or the NCTCFP is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files.